Well, we have been working through the book of Acts, having started this study actually right at the beginning of the year, and this is now the fifth sermon in the series. This is the furthest I've ever done in a series, so this is a new experience for me, but it's been very rewarding. And we've been focusing on the landmark event that happened on the day of Pentecost, when the Church of Jesus Christ was launched with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon his disciples at Jerusalem. So we'll be continuing that focus today because it is so foundational to understanding the heart and the plan of God, as well as gaining a proper understanding of his church. Now, although the disciples had been together before this time, and they had been seeking and praying and praising God, it can be argued quite convincingly, I think, that they had not yet quite become the church because they had not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the church is obviously a spiritual body as well as a physical body. And we know that without the Spirit, a body is lacking life. And being Christ's body, the church, it must be filled with the Spirit of Christ. So indeed, we have made the observation, haven't we, that the Holy Spirit himself not only regenerates us to be able to respond in faith and to become believers, but also vitally, it is the Holy Spirit in us that unites us in spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore makes us one in spirit as the church, that that is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, a lot of it is about, the fact that we are now united with Christ and united in each other through his Spirit in his body. This is what makes us the church of Christ. So we're reading here in Acts 2, about that unique and special day when the church really began, because this was new. It was all a sovereign act of God. It was perfect in its timing, and it was following God's plan of redemption that was established before Adam was even created. It was a fulfillment of God's promise not only by Jesus himself, as we've read before in chapter 1. You remember, he said, I will send you the promise. The promise will be sent to you, and you will be filled with power. Jesus also made this promise in the book of John. If you see John 14, for example, where he also says that I will not leave you as orphans, I will send you the Holy Spirit. But not only was it a promise of Christ, but it was also a fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament as well, which Peter will soon point out in his famous sermon in the next section of Acts, which we will be looking at more closely next week. But this week, I want to talk about 
three themes, really. Firstly, I want to talk about that language-speaking miracle at Pentecost a little more. And secondly, I want to talk about the biggest barrier that the disciples had to face as the church began to grow. And thirdly, I want to talk about how these aspects actually combined. They led to further extraordinary events that happened in Acts, which are hard to make sense of if you don't know about the first two aspects. So hopefully we'll be able to answer that question which is posed in verse 12, which says, what does this mean? Now, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, as you see, according to verses 2 and 4, there were three supernatural manifestations involving their ears, their eyes, and their mouths, which is interestingly, these are all senses key to being an effective witness, aren't they? When you are a witness to something, it's what you heard, what you saw, and you testify to it. And that's important because they, like we, are called to be Christ's witnesses. They heard a sound like a mighty wind. They saw tongues like fire, and they began to testify to the mighty works of God in verse 11, speaking in foreign languages. Now, last week, we worked through the details of these manifestations, how the wind has always been symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and how fire often accompanies the presence of God. We can think of occasions in the Old Testament where God was, his presence was in that fire. And also, fire has the connotation of purification and also of judgment, and how the speaking of foreign languages obviously involves other nations, foreigners. Now, on one hand, the nations had historically been used as instruments of judgment upon Israel, most famously through the Assyrians and through the Babylonians, when Israel was taken from the Promised Land into exile for breaking the covenant and not heeding the word of the Lord. But on the other hand, although God had formed the nations during a time of judgment at the Tower of Babel, you remember, and they had one speech, and when they did that, they were very proudly building up this tower to heaven to make a name for themselves, it says in Genesis 11. God came down and confused their language, and they were scattered, and that formed the basis of the table of nations. So the nations were formed during a time of judgment at the Tower of Babel. However, immediately following that account in Genesis 11, we have Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, 3, God expressed his concern for all peoples by declaring that through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And Paul clarifies for us, really interestingly, in Galatians 3.8, that this was nothing less than an early pro uh, proclamation of the gospel. Have a listen to this, Galatians 3.8. Paul writes, And the scripture 
foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now Luke here, writing this chapter here in Acts 2, from from verse 4 and following, Luke particularly focuses in on this foreign languages manifestation at Pentecost. Why? Because it points again to this aspect of God's plan of redemption, that it is intended for all peoples, not just for Israel and the Jews. And understanding this unlocks many otherwise confusing accounts in Scripture, as we will see as we continue. So, the crowd that gathers is international in its nature, as you can see on this map and in verses 9 to 11 there, that's beside it. Now, note, as you can see, it's, it's almost like every point of the compass, isn't it, that these people come from the known worlds around the Mediter- Mediterranean basin. The people who had gathered there, it needs to be noted, were devout Jews, and they had spread out from Israel as a result of historical events, which we call the Diaspora. So they had been pushed out because of all different sorts of events that made them be scattered around the different parts of the known world at that time. But, of course, they had come, being devout Jews, they had come to attend the Festival of Pentecost, which involved going to Jerusalem. So they come in to Jerusalem, and you can see they come from every part. They had been born outside of Israel, many of them but they were ethnically and culturally Jewish. They therefore could understand Hebrew and Aramaic and probably Greek, as well as their own native language. But one thing that I want to make absolutely clear about as we read this account of Pentecost is that we are dealing here with real human languages. Tongues in this context just means human languages, as it's made plain, because this is referred to no less than three times in our passage. You can have a look with me. In verse 6, it says, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 8, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So tongues here being used clearly as a synonym for human language. And even the places where these languages are spoken are listed here in this list. So we're 100% talking about, if you pardon the pun, talking about known human languages. And I need to make this point because unfortunately, it has become popular in Pentecostal circles to say that when you are baptized by the Holy Spirit, not only should you speak in another language, but it can be an unknown holy language or the language of angels, and therefore is unintelligible and sounds like babbling to us. It doesn't need to be a human language. It can be something else, they say. 
Now, that might be a very novel idea, but speaking gobbledygook and gibberish is just not found here in this scripture at Pentecost in any way at all. And that kind of makes sense because meaningless gibberish doesn't fit here because there are reasons and there is a meaning behind why the Holy Spirit gave them utterance of this human language, as we've mentioned before. So what some Pentecostals claim absolutely did not happen here at Pentecost. Going back to our passage here, which says that these devout Jews were bewildered, they were amazed, they were astonished, they were perplexed, because in verse 7 it says, Galileans, no less, with their thick accents, were suddenly able to tell the mighty works of God in the native languages of these devout Jews. Verse 11. Now, this had never happened before, and I want to tell you why. You see, the telling of God's mighty works happened in the synagogues every Sabbath. And being Jewish, it always happened exclusively in Hebrew or Aramaic because that was regarded as the language of God that he spoke when he compiled the Old Testament. So suddenly, being able to hear the the works of God that are, of course, detailed in the Old Testament, that they would have heard in Hebrew or possibly Aramaic, which is a variant of Hebrew, suddenly they're hearing these uh, accounts of the mighty works of God in their own native language. And this was yet another sign that God was breaking down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. And these barriers were very, very real. I want you to fully understand how this division and almost xenophobia came about because overcoming this prejudice was perhaps the biggest challenge that the church had to face to engage with their mission to be Christ's witnesses. You remember in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Well, it begins with the truth, the truth that Israel was God's chosen people. And this is demonstrated by such scriptures, and I want you to turn to this, please. So if you can grab your Bibles, I don't have it to go up on the screen, turn to your Bibles to Deuteronomy 7, 6, and I'll do that with you. Deuteronomy 7, 6. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For you, this is Moses, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So they have a privileged position. They're a treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So It's no wonder you can understand why the Jews thought they were unique and special. But I want you to take note of the verses preceding this from the top of the chapter, of chapter 7, which says, 
when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and top down, chop down their Asherim and burn their carved images with fire. So you can see there that Jewish law and tradition as it developed tried to separate the Jews from the Gentiles in order to prevent the Jews from adopting their idolatrous behaviors. It was just the sort of thing, this sort of thing, that is intermarrying and being infected, if you like, by these Gentiles, that did result in the extremely traumatic covenant curse of exile from the promised land that fell upon Israel. And so the Jews were now determined not to fall into that trap again. And we know that the best way to avoid was just don't go near it. So from the Jewish perspective, Gentiles were seen as pagans who did not know the true God and were consequently dangerous and infectious. And so during Jesus' time, many Jews took on this pride in their cultural and religious heritage that they considered Gentiles as unclean, calling them dogs and the uncircumcised. The Gentiles and the half-Gentile Samaritans were viewed as enemies to be shunned. And the Jewish people consequently did not associate or eat with them. And I'm sure you can remember scriptures where that pops up. For those that are taking notes, here's some quick references. John 4, 9 and John 18, 28, Acts 10, 28, Acts 11, 3, and Galatians 2, 12. Examples there of how the Jewish people did not associate or eat with Gentiles or Samaritans. Now, as is indicated here that there are certain types of people that a Jew would encounter at the time of Christ. Now, one of these groups is actually mentioned in our passage in verse 11, the proselytes. These were foreigners who had so identified with the Jews and their religion that they had gone all the way and adopted their Jewish practices, even including circumcision for the men very brave. There was even, you know, a part of the temple in Jerusalem called the outer court of the Gentiles reserved for their use. 
which interestingly in Jesus' time had been taken over, you might remember, by the sacrificial animal sellers and the money changers, which was thus denying these, these Gentiles who had become proselytes, denied them full entry into the temple. And this was probably the cause of Jesus' turning violent and doing the cleaning out of the temple, the cleansing of the temple. You remember when he completely lost it and went angry and overturned, made a weapon, got them out there, and he tellingly, Jesus tellingly declares, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, it says in Mark eleven fifteen to 17. So that's one group. Another group is the Samaritans, who were originally Israelites from the time of the northern kingdom, where the capital city was Samaria, and they were exiled to Assyria. Those that remained, they intermarried with uh, Gentiles, which was the practice of the Assyrians to, to plant people from other nations into other nations that they had conquered. So they were half Jewish, half Gentile, and they began to make some adjustments to traditional Jewish practices. And this is why when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, it was so confronting to his Jewish audience. Yet another group was the God-fearers. These were Gentiles who were drawn to the Jewish religion in that they believed that the God of the Jews was indeed the one true God. But they found some of the rites, like circumcision, a little bit too much to handle. So they couldn't, didn't want to go completely full in. So they're the God-fearers. And then finally, there are, of course, the pagan Gentiles, like the Romans themselves, who, to add salt to the injury of the Jews, had conquered and then occupied the traditional lands of Israel. So four groups of people, apart from the Jews, one can encounter. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does this have to do with Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit? Well, for starters, we know that there were proselytes in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost who witnessed this dramatic, dramatic manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and more than likely, some of them were a part of the 3,000 souls who were later added to the church as a result in verse 41. But what about the other groups? You may be surprised to learn that there were actually three mini Pentecosts that are recorded in Acts. And they don't include all of the manifestations that we find here in the original Pentecost event, but they do include the manifestation of speaking in other languages. Now, this would seem to contradict, which is why I raise it. This would seem to contradict two teachings that we've already had, namely that believers don't need to seek an extra experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that speaking in other languages is not to be seen as a normal part of this experience because these are both special and unique signs to show that God himself approved of these new developments that were happening in his plan of redemption. Now, I want to show you that these teachings are, in fact, exactly right. They're not contradicted by these three 
mini-Pentecosts, because they themselves are also exceptions to the rule. Why? Because they correspond to our three remaining groups, the Samaritans, the God-fearers, and the Gentiles, wherever they may be found. So these little mini-Pentecosts answered the question, can these three previously alienated groups be accepted into the new Christian church if they become believers? Because the average Jew, including many of the disciples, would think not. So, let's quickly turn to Acts 8. Acts 8, verse 14 to 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given, this Simon the sorcerer, this is, Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money. Now, here's the question. Why had there been a delay between believing and receiving the Holy Spirit for these Samaritans? Why? Because God wanted the apostles and everyone to know that he accepted the Samaritans, regardless of their ethnicity, but rather because of their faith in Jesus. And how did the apostles and even Simon the sorcerer know that the Samaritans had indeed received the Holy Spirit? Well, there must have been some sort of outward manifestation to confirm this. It's not mentioned here, but it is mentioned in the other accounts to come. And so it is reasonable to extrapolate that it was speaking in other languages that took place. Okay, let's go to the next one. Acts 10, Acts 10, 42 to 47. This is where Peter had recently had his vision of the sheet coming down with unclean animals. And the voice said, get up, Peter, and take and eat. And he says, no, I've never touched anything unclean. And the voice says and tells Peter, do not call that which God has made clean, unclean. And so now Peter is in the house of Cornelius, a centurion, a God-fearer, and he's invited all his relatives and friends to come along who are other Gentiles. And now Peter is testifying about Jesus to them. Acts 10, 42 to 47. 42. This is Peter. And he, that is Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the, un, from, from among the circumcised 
So the, the Jews, yeah, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Note that it's as soon as Peter says, everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. That's the moment that the Holy Spirit comes upon them. As if to emphasize the point, yes, everyone, everyone who does believe in Jesus is accepted and receives the Holy Spirit. I think it's telling here that Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? What? Just as we have. No distinguishing between even the Samaritans. Finally, let's quickly glance at Acts 19 verses 1 to 7, which is an interesting situation. This is Paul now. Paul is unexpectedly, he's traveling, he unexpectedly comes across about a dozen people who were disciples, not of Jesus, but actually of John the Baptist. The disciples of John the Baptist, and they're living in the Roman city at Ephesus, but they know next to nothing about Jesus. So from Acts 19, is from the second part of Verse 1, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Paul, into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So even people who knew nothing about the goings-on in Jerusalem, living far from Israel, which of course was a situation most Gentiles were going to be in, living even in a Gentile Roman city famous for its shrines and adultery, no less, these were also accepted by God into his church, baptized in the Holy Spirit once they believed in the name of Jesus. And the proof of this was their speaking in other languages and prophesying. After this event, we have no record of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the speaking of other languages being linked again, because the point had been emphatically proven that believing proselytes, believing Samaritans, believing God-fearers, and believing Gentiles, and no matter where they were, 
had now been verified by God as to be included in this new church that Jesus was building with all the rights and privileges thereof. To conclude, the true Pentecost experience was significant because it heralded a new unity found in the Holy Spirit that transcended national, racial, social, prejudicial, and linguistic barriers. The supernatural manifestation of speaking in other languages when the Holy Spirit came upon believers, documented as happening four times, these times were unique in that they clearly validated that the Church of Jesus Christ was able to encompass a broader net of believers from all nations and languages, and it was not limited to one ethnic group. It was able to overcome even ancient historical tensions and great geographical distances, and it even overcomes our own modern-day misinterpretations of some aspects of Scripture. Because according to Romans 8-9, whether you speak in other languages or no, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Interestingly, in the last verse of our text, in verse 13, some mockingly said, they are filled with new wine. Unwittingly, they were right. Paul, you might remember, encourages believers to not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. And Jesus himself had something to say about new wine in a parable in uh, each of the Gospels, but in particular in Luke 5.37-39. He said, that new wine needs new wineskins because old wineskins can't accommodate the ever-expanding nature of new wine as it ferments. So also here, a new body was required to contain not only the new outpourings of the Holy Spirit, but also the new inclusion of believers from every nation and tribe and tongue. And that body was the church of Jesus Christ, and it was established here at Pentecost.